back to the Colorado Switchblade Podcast, where we slice through the headlines to bring you in-depth conversations and insights on the stories shaping our world, both here in the high mountains of Colorado and across the nation. As always, I'm your host, Jason Van Tatenhove. Today's episode is one I've eagerly been anticipating. We're delving into a groundbreaking legal decision that's not just a Colorado story, but one with national ramifications. I had the privilege of sitting down with Nikkel Suss from Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. Now, if you're a reader of the Colorado Switchblade, you'll know I just put out a piece on our legal victory here in Colorado, um, which hopefully has a historical precedence uh, that will spread to other states across the nation. So we're going to have that interview. Before we do that, I just want to take a moment to to say thank you to my readers and listeners and, and those who follow me on my, my books and whatnot that uh, decided to come to Estes Park, Colorado and enjoy my author's dinner, which uh, went off really well. It was uh, It was very well attended. It helped raise some funds for me and the girls during our holiday season, our first without my wife and, and life and writing partner, Shiloh. So um, definitely making the holidays a little better. Also wanted to mention that I do have hard copies of, of my books that are available in hard copy, which are the um, Colorado Chance, The Firewalker, my uh, first ever novel, uh, first ever book written. It was... Um, written during the pandemic. Uh, new edition of that I just released. Um, I do have hard copy editions of that little side note. Um, while they still function as a book, it, something went wrong in the uh, process with the printing and everything is in italics, but you get used to that pretty quick. So I'm, I'm actually offering those for $5 off um, the normal uh, price of $30. So uh, 25 for those. And then I also have some copies left of my first narrative nonfiction, majorly published book put out by Skyhorse, The Perils of Extremism. Um, and then also have some, some uh, paperback versions of Colorado's Chance and then the novella I put out a couple years ago as a Halloween special. So um, if you're looking for some last minute gifts or have some uh, extra Christmas money burning a hole in your pocket, I'd be happy to sign those for you and ship them out. Reach out to me, Jason at Colorado switchblade.com. You'll have to pay for shipping because I'm poor. I'm a writer. Um, but uh, be happy to inscribe it for you or a loved one and uh, ship it out to you. Uh, I have Venmo. And um, so, yeah, just something to think about. So before we get into the interview, I'm going to pay the bills with uh, my little audio commercial of the Colorado's Chance, The Firewalker. Have you ever visited the breathtaking landscapes of Estes Park, Colorado, and wished your adventure didn't have to end? Now you can continue the journey with Colorado's Chance, The Firewalker, a thrilling supernatural adventure set right in Estes Park, Rocky Mountain National Park, and Aspen. Follow the story of Chance Van Horn, a seasoned journalist, as he delves into mysterious occurrences at the Summit Hotel, navigating through a labyrinth of danger, enigmatic symbols, and dark secrets. And join summer and winter his adventurous nieces as they uncover hidden realms and mystical libraries. 
all set against the stunning backdrop of Colorado's Rockies. Whether you've visited Estes Park, call it home, or have yet to experience its wonders, this novel brings the magic of the mountains to life, weaving a tale of suspense, mystery, and unbreakable bonds of family. So are you ready to dive back into the beauty of Colorado and embark on an unforgettable supernatural adventure? Grab your copy of Colorado's Chance, The Firewalker, today, available on Amazon.com. Don't miss out on this journey of mystery, resilience, and the magic of the supernatural, crafted by Estes Park's own Jason Van Tatenhove. All right. So for those of you who've been following, Crew has been at the forefront of a historic legal battle here in Colorado, one that recently saw a monumental decision from the Colorado Supreme Court. This case, which involves the disqualification of former President Trump from the state's presidential ballot, is now making its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In our conversation, Nikel takes us behind the scenes of this legal odyssey, we discuss the implications of the Colorado ruling, the nuances of using the 14th Amendment in this context, and what lies ahead as this case ascends to the nation's highest court. So whether you're a legal enthusiast, a political aficionado, or just someone who cares deeply about the state of our democracy, this episode is packed with insights. So let's dive right into my conversation with Nikel Suss. All right. Welcome to the Colorado Switchblade Podcast. I'm Jason Van Tatenhove, and today we're joined by Nikel Suss from Citizens for Responsible Ethics in Washington, otherwise known as Crew. Nikel, thanks so much for being here to discuss Crew's historic case in Colorado, which has now made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, or at least is on its way. Um, could you start off just by giving us a brief overview of, of who you are and the, the work you're doing with Crew? And then we'll we'll follow up with a, a breakdown of the Colorado case, especially the uh, use of Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, and and what prompted Crew to pursue this legal action. Sure, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today, Jason. Um, so I am a Crew's uh, director of strategic litigation. Uh, Crew is a, a nonpartisan uh, government watchdog group that's based in Washington D.C. Uh, and we are primarily focused on owning accountability uh, and transparency in government. Um, after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, uh, we began, our organization began focusing intently on pursuing legal accountability for public officials who were involved in the January 6th insurrection. Uh, and quickly our focus began to shift to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, this is a provision of the Constitution that was added after the Civil War to bar uh, the uh, former Confederates from holding uh, federal or state office in the United States. Um, and though it was adopted for that purpose, uh, it is not limited to the events of the Civil War. Uh, the sort of text of the 14th Amendment and the history of it make clear that uh, the, those who framed the 14th Amendment wanted this provision to apply not only to Confederates, but also future participants in any insurrections or rebellions uh, against the Constitution of the United States. And fortunately for our country, we didn't have any uh, insurrections or rebellions uh, until 
uh, January 6, 2021. And so with this uh, sort of unprecedented event, uh, the, uh, the section three became relevant once again, uh, and crew brought, uh, last year, a case in, uh, uh, New Mexico, uh, to enforce this provision against a county commissioner who, uh, participated in the January 6th insurrection, uh, and the state court in New Mexico, uh, uh, ruled that, uh, that county commissioner, his name is, uh, Coy Griffin, was disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And so that sort of kicked off our, our legal work in this space. Uh, and that is what led to the uh, litigation in Colorado uh, against former President Trump. So the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to disqualify the former president from the state ballot was a, a very significant move. Can you speak to the importance of this ruling for for American democracy, I mean, just moving forward, we're in such a dynamic time in our country. And I know I personally believe we are at a crossroads where we may see our democratic processes fall away. Can you can you speak to the importance of this ruling for American democracy and also what it means to crew for, for the work you all are doing there? So, I mean, the ruling is, is critically important to American democracy. It's critically important to constitutional supremacy. And the fact that our constitution is the supreme law of the land and that it applies to uh, to anyone who is within its scope uh, and the courts are obligated to apply the constitution, uh, you know, it in addition to, you know, confirming uh, in in stark terms and explicit terms that former President Trump uh, engaged in an insurrection against the constitution. Uh, and that his speech and conduct around January 6th was not protected by the First Amendment, uh, the Colorado Supreme Court uh, affirmed more broadly the court's authority to enforce the Constitution of the United States, confirmed that uh, state courts don't need permission from Congress, they don't need an act of Congress allowing courts to uh, enforce this provision, that courts uh, not only can but must do so under the Constitution, uh, and that you know we, we have heard uh, from from some uh, you know uh, from Trump and from others uh, opponents of these efforts that uh, these are these are sort of non-justiciable political questions, and that these are the types of things that courts can't decide. And uh, the Colorado Supreme Court uh, strongly rejected that uh, premise and and said. No, this is exactly what courts are for. Courts are supposed to interpret the Constitution, and they're supposed to uh, apply it in a given case, and that's exactly what this was. Um, and so the court's findings are sort of significant on the on legal front in that respect. On the historical front and sort of the factual front, they're equally important because you have a court uh, confirming that the January 6th attack was an insurrection against the Constitution. It was a concerted effort by thousands of people to oppose the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, and that qualifies as an insurrection under our constitution. Uh, and that is important legally, but it's also important historically because uh, as I'm sure you know, we're living through a moment where there is a concerted effort to revise the history of January 6th of what happened that day. Uh, and to have a state's highest court um, confirm what we all saw and witnessed with our own eyes uh, is is important in and of itself. So irrespective of any sort of legal fallout from this, uh, it is critical for the historical and factual record that the court weighed in on this and confirmed these points in a uh, incredibly detailed and well-reasoned decision. 
In the trial, you had some expert witnesses discussing the right-wing extremism and political violence. How do these factors relate to the case and the decision to disqualify Trump? It kind of ties back to, to the answer you just gave. So that was a critical part of the case and a critical part of both the trial court's findings that uh, Trump knowingly and willfully engaged in the insurrection uh, and uh, the, the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling affirming those findings. Um, so when we, when we think about January 6th and we think about Donald Trump's role in it, often folks limit it to the sort of January 6th rally. Uh, but that is not when his efforts started no. uh, in connection with January 6th. His his efforts started long before that. Uh, and, you know, a big part of the insurrection was getting people to D.C., getting tens of thousands of people to D.C. And not only, you know, just Trump supporters, but some of uh, former President Trump's most violent uh, supporters and those who had a history of violence. Um, and that includes uh, militia groups and other uh, far-right extremist groups uh, that uh, had attended prior Trump rallies that had instigated violence, uh, that have a history of uh, uh, white supremacy, misogyny, uh, and other sort of harmful uh, harmful uh, political rhetoric and actions, concrete actions that actually resulted in, in intangible harm. Uh, and what our evidence showed was that um, Donald Trump had de developed, developed a call and response with uh, many of these far-right groups that he knew that they were violent, uh, that they had a history of violence, and that they listened to his words, and that over time he understood this relationship and understood that he could use it uh, in ways that uh, might benefit him politically, that he might be able to direct uh, some of his most violent supporters to do things to help him. Uh, and that's exactly what happened on the 6th when, uh, you know, for with his uh, will be wild tweet uh, in December of 20, when he summoned uh, the, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people to to come to D.C. for January 6th for the joint session of Congress. Um, he knew what he was doing. And that is exactly what the district court and the uh, Colorado Supreme Court confirmed, that. When Trump did these things, when he was inciting people with these lies of a stolen election, when he was uh, sort of goading them with the notion that the election had been stolen, and not just stolen, but stolen from them, uh, from his supporters, uh, he knew what he was doing, and he knew that th this was going to lead to violence, and he intended that result. And that is exactly what the court found. The court said that he specifically, Trump specifically intended to cause a violent insurrection on January 6th, uh, both in his, uh, and, and the court did that based both on his speech and uh, his actions uh, leading up to the 6th. So, so the, the sort of connection between uh, Trump and the most violent uh, elements amongst his supporters was a central part of this. Can you walk us through the process as the case moves to the US Supreme Court? What are the key arguments and strategies that crew plants emphasize, if you can, um, during the appeal process? So, I, you know, I, I would put a pause on it to, at the beginning just to say we, we don't know what will happen yet. Uh, the Colorado Supreme Court has uh, issued their decision uh, and it has said it will go into effect uh, unless uh, Trump petitions the Colorado Supreme Court or, or sorry, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, by early January. Uh, so. We don't know whether Trump will appeal. He has said he will, but we haven't actually seen that yet. 
Um, so uh, he would have to file an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court would have to take it. Um, they don't have to take it. They they theoretically could decide not to take it if, if for whatever reason they they deem necessary. Uh, that being said, we do anticipate that if Trump uh, does petition the U.S. Supreme Court to take up the case, that they will take it. Uh, and we, we can expect that the legal issues are largely going to be the same as the ones that the Colorado Supreme Court addressed in their, you know, detailed 100 plus page decision. Uh, you know, the the the, key, the arguments that that the uh, Trump has raised include that the president is not an officer of the United States under the Constitution, that the office of the president is not an office under the United States. Um, that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that state courts can't enforce uh, the Constitution. They, state courts can't enforce the 14th Amendment without permission from Congress. Other sort of procedural arguments that have less to do with the merits of the case, including that this case presents a, a non-justiciable political question. And then on the merits, you know, uh, Trump claims that there was no insurrection on January 6th, uh, that he didn't engage in insurrection, and that his speech surrounding the six was protected by the First Amendment. So I think we can expect all of those issues to be uh, presented in the U.S. Supreme Court if if they take the case and it, if Trump appeals and they take the case. Yeah. Now, now, the district court ruling found Trump engaged in an insurrection, but did not disqualify him based on a technicality regarding the presidential oath. How do you plan to address this in your appeal if it does move forward? So the Colorado Supreme Court disagreed with that ruling and reverse that ruling. Um, it otherwise adopted the district court's reasoning, which ruled on us on every legal and factual issue in the case. And that was sort of the narrow legal question that that stopped her from uh, ordering Trump uh, not be listed on the ballot. Um, so I, th I, I we are we agree with the Colorado Supreme Court. We think they got it right. Uh, basically, what they said is the text, the history and common sense all teach us that the president is an officer of the United States and that the president holds an office under the United States. The Constitution says that the presidency is an office, a quote, office, 25 times. Um, there is extensive historical evidence from that time period, uh, from 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted, with uh, individuals at the time referring to the president as an officer of the United States. You have, you know, for example, President Andrew Johnson, who was the president during Reconstruction after the Civil War, he repeatedly referred to himself as the officer, the chief executive officer of the United States. Um, there were numerous references during the debates over the 14th Amendment when Congress is debating whether to adopt this provision uh, in which they referred to the president as an officer of the United States. And so really, you know, text, history, purpose, all of it aligns with the notion that, you know, the, the 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 framers of this constitutional amendment did not mean to adopt a presidential loophole, um, and it would make no sense. It would thwart the purpose of this provision, which was to primarily to, to uh, ex-Confederate leaders. They were uh, they were really concerned about folks like Jefferson Davis becoming the president. Um, and after uh, uh, after the the war and, and during Reconstruction. Uh, Folks, ex-Confederates were flooding Congress with amnesty requests because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment allows Congress to remove a disability by a supermajority vote of, of Congress. And so you had thousands of ex-Confederates asking Congress amnesty, please let me you know, serve in government, remove my disability. And eventually, Congress passed a, a bill that granted blanket amnesty 
1872 to most ex-Confederates. But even then, even then, four years later, they said, we're, we're going to grant it to most ex-Confederates, but not the leadership class. We are not going to extend it to Jefferson Davis. We are not going to extend it to folks who held very high positions before the Civil War. And so that is really powerful evidence that even when there was intense political pressure on Congress to sort of let bygones be bygones and move on past the Civil War, they still did not think that folks like Jefferson Davis, that the leaders of the Confederate rebellion should be in government. And so, again, we, we think that is very strong evidence that there is there's no support for the notion that there is a presidential loophole here. Given the current political and judicial landscape, what challenges and opportunities do you anticipate in arguing this case before the Supreme Court if it makes it there? Um, you know, there, there have been some ethical questions and, you know, there's certainly a conservative majority that seems to align with Trump a lot um, with the court now. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I will say that the case that presented and that the Colorado Supreme Court uh, agreed with and affirmed is based primarily on historical evidence. It's it's based on sort of the original public meaning and original understanding of the 14th Amendment. Uh, the current majority on the U.S. Supreme Court has strongly endorsed this theory of constitutional interpretation. They've adopted it recently in, in Second Amendment cases, uh, in other 14th Amendment cases, uh, and in other constitutional cases where a certain subset of justices uh, believe that it is the appropriate way to interpret the Constitution is what the words meant at the time. So if uh, an amendment was adopted in 1868, you look back at the historical evidence from 1868 and you ask, what did the words mean then? And our argument in this case is is based both on that sort of method of interpretation and also just common sense and how these words are interpreted today as well. But the historical evidence in that sort of originalist case that a lot of the justices on this current Supreme Court uh, subscribe to all point in the direction of Donald Trump being disqualified. Um, and so we think we have a very strong argument uh, under that that constitutional mode of interpretation, as well as other uh, theories of interpretation. So lastly, what do you feel are the potential nationwide implications for future elections and presidential candidates if the Supreme Court upholds the Colorado ruling? In an article by NPR today, they, they, it was quoted as saying a decision by the court could take many different forms. It could uphold the Colorado court's decision to declare Trump ineligible or overturn it. It could limit its decision to Colorado or apply it to the whole country. It could issue an expedited opinion in a matter of days or, or deliberate until June or July, long after many of the states hold their primaries. Um, how, how do you think this is all going to play out? How do you hope it will anyway? Well, we hope that the Supreme Court takes the case and affirms the Colorado Supreme Court. Um, we think they that, that that court got it right. Uh, we are primarily, I understand that there are sort of different uh, permutations of what could happen, but this case is primarily about Colorado and the interests of Coloradans and our, our, our clients in the case who are uh, four Republican voters and two unaffiliated voters in the state. And so while it's possible that there could be relief sort of broader or uh, that could have implications outside of the state, that is that is not our primary focus in this case, relief that we are specifically seeking. We are simply uh, trying to enforce the state ballot access laws, which require that only qualified candidates can appear 
drawn him back. And Donald Trump is not qualified to be on the presidential primary ballot in Colorado. Um, not every state has uh, similar ballot access laws. And so it might be a different question in different states. But where state law provides a procedure to enforce the U.S. Constitution, it must be enforced just as if Donald Trump were 20 years old or if he were not a natural born citizen. Uh, or if he had already served two terms as president, you know, all of those reasons would disqualify him. Uh, and for the same reason, Section three of the 14th Amendment disqualifies him and he can't be on a ballot. Well, Nikel, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us today. This case is not only pivotal for Colorado, but could set a precedent with far reaching implications for the entire country. I know that uh, I'll keenly be following his progression to the Supreme Court. And just again, thanks for joining us here on the Colorado Switchblade. Thank you so much, Jason. And that wraps up our conversation with Nikel Suss from Crew. A huge thank you to Nikel for joining us today and providing such insightful perspectives on this pivotal case. As this legal battle continues to unfold, it's clear that the implications extend far beyond Colorado. What happens next could very well shape the future of electoral politics and the interpretation of the constitutional law in our country. We'll be sure to keep a close eye on the developments as this case progresses to the U.S. Supreme Court. Stay tuned to the Colorado Switchblade for updates and more in-depth analysis on this and other stories that matter. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for more insightful discussions. It's available anywhere you get your podcasts. Just search for the Colorado Switchblade. You can also visit our website, at https colon forward slash forward slash www.coloradoswitchblade.com. You can also follow us on Substack. Sign up for the newsletter for the latest news and updates. I'm Jason Vantano, thanking you for listening and reminding you to always stay sharp, stay informed, stay engaged, and stay classy, Colorado. Until next time, keep cutting through all that noise.